This podcast is sponsored by Echelon. Echelon is the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation right in the comfort of your own home. With Echelon, you can work at any time, day or night, and crush your fitness goals. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, just text GENIUS to 818181. Quick disclaimer, message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I'm talking to Dr. Mo Hanna. She's a full-time professor of psychology at Siena College in Loudonville, New York. I'm going to talk about her previous work and a couple different topics. So, Dr. Mo, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Well, tell me a bit about your background. You know, what are some of the major issues you've worked on in, uh, in psychology or psychotherapy? Yeah, well, you know, one thing I just want to mention is I've sort of got a two-track career, maybe even more than two tracks, but at least two tracks. Uh, I'm an academic psychologist. I teach uh, at an undergraduate school, as you, as you mentioned, Siena College, and I teach um, generally the clinical topics of psychology. So I have a, a doctorate in clinical psychology, so my emphasis is on human beings, human problems the human dilemma, um, the human mind, how we operate, how we get traumatized, how we break down and how we heal. So I teach those topics, but I also work with human beings and learn from them so that when I teach on these topics, I teach not just out of the textbook, but I teach out of my own lived experience. This is something that I'm very privileged to be able to do. You know, some people who teach at the college level or at the, at the um, graduate level, graduate school level, don't have clinical experience. It's just not what they do. They just stick with the research end. But I've kind of always wanted to be a little bit more of a more of a well-rounded, diverse psychologist. And so I really do try to work with my direct experience and communicate my direct experience, as well as using the research and the findings in my field. So, So that's, you know, part of the emphasis that I come from. And I think the topic that we're going to be talking about, maybe among others, the psychiatric drugging of children, psychiatric drugging of adults actually, comes out of that sort of merging of the science of the field, of my field, and my clinical work, my my direct contact, and learning from my clients. What does that mean, the psychiatric drugging? Can you explain that? Psychiatric drugging is the use of use of psychiatric medications, mind-altering, brain-altering chemicals that are commonly used, especially within the field of psychiatry, but in all of the related mental health fields, in order to modify people's emotions, uh, experiences, and behavior. And they have become, over the past, I would say, around 30 years, the predominant tool used, certainly within the field of psychiatry, but even within the field of, to a lesser degree, but even within the field of clinical psychology, I can talk about my own training and background when I was, you know, coming into 
my, my doctorate and learning about the mainstream teachings of my field, psychiatric drugs were really sort of like at the crest, at the forefront of how psychological disorders, I, I'm not crazy about that term, but just to use a term that's familiar to my field, how psychological disorders are addressed and approached and, and treated. Is your thought that um, prescription drugs are given too often and just for anything, or do you think that they're given appropriately? Like what's your overall observation? Yeah, it's a little bit, it's kind of on the nuanced side. Okay. So there are some in my subfield, okay, I might say there there are some in my, I don't even want to say in my camp, but there there is a subset of practitioners, psychiatrists, even physicians, psychologists, mental health practitioners, who are very opposed to the use of psychiatric drugs. I'm a little bit more moderate about that. And that is partly due to my direct experience with clients who have actually apparently been benefited by the use of these drugs. And when I say benefited, I mean, not that I believe that it cured their quote unquote mental illness per se, but that they report feeling better and being able to cope better. Having said that, absolutely, my main or one of my main objections to the way that we have come to use psychiatric drugs, and here I'm talking about the antidepressants primarily, but also the anti-anxiety drugs, and to some degree also the antipsychotic drugs. Okay, so those three categories of drugs how they are prescribed, how often they are prescribed, how quickly they are prescribed, how promiscuously they are prescribed, and the lack of informed consent, in my opinion, that patients or clients receive when they are being prescribed these drugs and they start taking these drugs. And often ending up, by the way, and this is one of the main objections that many of us in, in this, you know, sort of what we call the social psychiatry movement, some people call it anti-psychiatry, I'd rather not call it that, but many people object to the fact that not only are these drugs prescribed too quickly, but people are, are left taking these drugs with very little, re, very little meaningful oversight for years and often decades. How long do they work? You know, what, what's the typical profile of, uh, you know, of someone that takes uh, any of these drugs clinically over time? What does it look like in the aggregate? Honestly, I would say that there is no typical profile. They work for some people. They don't work for other people. They work for a while for some people. They don't work for very long for other people. Some people have very significant startup effects when they start the drugs. Some people don't feel anything like that. Some people report that they feel much better on the drugs. Other people report that they feel no difference on the drugs. And some people have significant withdrawal effects when they try to go off the drugs and other people get off these drugs with no difficulty. And I think this is what leads to a lot of confusion among people as far as the potential downside of these drugs, because it really depends upon your own experience with them, as well as the experiences of people you know. Well, is anyone studying why some people do well and why some people don't have positive or negative effects? They they are studying that, and you know there there's a speculation that there may be genetic causes or genetic contributors for some people reacting poorly to one drug as opposed to the next drug. There are, and I cannot vouch for the the um, accuracy of those tests. Kind of a dispute as to how accurate they actually are, but that is sometimes used, but not certainly not all the time, used as a guide to prescribing. I, the, the the typical way that these drugs are prescribed, quite frankly, is by trial and error. 
Okay. So somebody who walks into their doctor's office, and when I say doctor, I mean really almost any doctor, almost any doctor, not necessarily a psychiatrist. Uh, There's a statistic out there that says something like 70% of people who are prescribed their antidepressants or sometimes antidepressants are prescribed for anxiety. They often, they use the very same drugs for both of those sets of problems. Typically it's a general practitioner. It's their family doctor rather than a psychiatrist, okay? And that may be part of the problem. It may be part of the problem because psychiatry psychiatrists certainly get more training in the use of these drugs and their mechanisms than family practice doctors do. But regardless, in the, in the field of, of prescribing, the patient is not often given the, the full range of information about what they are putting into their body. And also informed consent requires learning about the benefits and the possible risks, as well as the alternatives to using psychiatric medication. So that's a long answer to your question. It's impossible to know really, just like we don't really know what causes mental illness. There's lots of theories out there. Okay. Lots of theories. And I teach those theories in my, in my, uh, my courses, but we don't really know for sure. There is no definitive answer to that. And likewise, it is a bit of a mystery as to why some people respond marvelously to 20 milligrams of Prozac, which is the first drug that was introduced in this country in the late 1980s, and why somebody takes one dose of Prozac and feels like they're jumping out of their skin. And I have heard that reported to me, both sides of that I've heard reported to me by clients. I've been working too hard and not working out enough. I wanted to get in shape, but I don't have time to get to the gym. Echelon brings the gym home to me. So right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S, to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181, and message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. What does the studies look like? What, what do you do? How do you know which drug to give somebody and how much of it and all that? Who's studying this? It, there are guidelines. I mean, remember, I'm not a prescriber, so I cannot tell you what prescribers are trained to do. I can tell you that the general way that psychiatrists learn about these drugs, aside from their medical, their training in psychiatric residencies. Okay, again, I did not go through a psychiatric residency. I trained with psychiatrists when I was at when I was doing my um, internship, and I was I was rotating with some of the psychiatry uh, residents at UCLA, but. I can't vouch for what kind of training they get, but I can tell you that from interacting with people in the psychiatry field, psychiatric uh, psychiatric uh, nurses, and as well as many, many, many clients who I interact with around their psychiatric medication, I always am careful to ask them about their medications and if they're having side effects and if they're thinking of coming off how to come off of these drugs uh, using the harm reduction method and being very, very careful not to trigger brain instability, which some people experience when they go off these drugs. So what I learned is, is, is really from my direct experience, from my clinical experience, as well as actually working with people who have had very adverse outcomes from using these drugs. But what does that mean? What have you learned? What do you do for them? How do you know how to help them? Well, again, I'm not a prescriber, so I cannot tell them to go on this drug or go off that drug. I cannot help them. What I can do is enlighten them to the commonality of what they are experiencing. So, for example, when people come off of an antidepressant, okay, many times they will come off of this antidepressant either by going cold turkey. And what we mean by cold turkey is they stop suddenly taking the drug. 
thinking that, oh, I feel better. This is a very common experience. People say, I feel better. I don't need these drugs anymore. Okay. So they just stop taking it. So other people say, okay, my doctor told me to take two weeks where I cut the drug, I cut my pill in half, or I, I cut my dosage in half. And then another two weeks where I cut it down into quarters. And then I just go off. Okay. Look, some people do fine using those methods. Some people get off these drugs with very little difficulty. But what we now know from the withdrawal community, that's a subgroup of people who have begun a dialogue probably over the last 15 years or so, talking about some of the downside of going off these drugs and the real significant, sometimes disabling effects of withdrawing, especially withdrawing too quickly. And there is a subset, perhaps, and we're, we're estimating somewhere around 40 to 60 percent of people who are on these drugs and then try to go off these drugs. And that's an estimate or a guesstimate. The studies are still pretty new. Uh, but what we're finding is there's a certain proportion of people who start to have really significant problems. And they have a list of symptoms from withdrawing from their antidepressant or their anti, sometimes their antipsychotic, if they're on an antipsychotic or an anti-anxiety drug that the list is pages and pages long, okay? Everything from brain zaps to heightened anxiety to the inability to sleep, to loss of appetite, to things like uh, suicidal thinking, feeling like you have the inability to sit still, which is sometimes referred to as akathisia, and even suicidal ideation. And there are some people, quite frankly, who in the midst of withdrawal from their medication as we put it, they were never able to restabilize. It's as though the brain got destabilized and they were never able to stabilize. And quite frankly, I have two people that I know of, close people, people that I know of who I was well familiar, familiar with, who took their own life in the midst of withdrawal. I know others who have become effectively disabled in the midst of withdrawal. And yet when they try to report this to their doctors, typically they are told that it's all in their head, or it couldn't possibly be from the withdrawal effects of the drugs, et cetera, et cetera. So you say, how do you help these people? I help these people by telling them about what I know and trying to help them normalize their experience. And then I direct them to the, to the, the information that is available online and in some books on how to hopefully restabilize once they have withdrawn and they start having these significant withdrawal symptoms. Well, okay. So if they know about that these things happen, what what good does that do for them? Who can they go to that will help advise them on how to handle their situation? But they that just is, know that they're screwed and that's the end of it or what, what happens? Well, that's that's a great question because to this day, I think 10 years ago, very few prescribers understood the potential that these drugs, when you withdraw from them, the potential devastating effects that they can have. 10 years ago, I didn't know this, okay? I've been in practice as a psychologist for about 30 years. And 10 years ago, I didn't know this. It was only through witnessing directly the impact of withdrawal on several people that were close to me that I recognized this, this is not what I was taught in graduate school about these drugs being safe, effective, and non-addictive. And I think there has been a slow increase in awareness because, again, I, I learn a great deal from my clients. I learn from my lived experience. And I have clients telling me occasionally, not real often, but just occasionally, that they have a practitioner who warned them about withdrawal in the same way that I warn my clients about withdrawal. 
if they're if that's what they're planning on doing and if they're opening open to hearing it and these practitioners are wise enough to say let's go very very slowly and monitor your symptoms if you have any as you are you are weaning off this drug and i'm very very gratified to hear that but it's still not nearly widespread enough of a practice so there's no real studies on biologically why certain people have problems versus not they're not there yet or they knew There's, or I they think, just I, I, believe that, I, I believe that what we have are studies of how frequently people experience withdrawal symptoms. As far as the why, I don't think we're there yet. Okay. Well, what would be your recommendation at this point for, uh, you know, what needs to be done first? Does the withdrawal need to be studied? Does withdrawal? success, clinical yes, success I, or failure need to be studied? Like what, how, how does anyone get a handle on this problem then? I think um, withdrawal the reports that patients or clients have about their withdrawal symptoms need to be taken seriously. People need to be no longer gaslighted about what they are experiencing. And believe me, I've heard this story from countless people who are told that their withdrawal symptoms are not withdrawal symptoms. They are symptoms of their quote unquote mental illness. Okay. And that is simply not the case in the vast majority of these cases. So yes, we need to study withdrawal. We need to study the frequency of withdrawal. We need to study why some people have withdrawal and other people don't have withdrawal. What is the best way of withdrawing people who have certain maybe sensitivities to withdrawal? Because again, not everybody is the same. And no, I don't think we know why some people go through severe withdrawal and other people do not. With the same drug, I'm talking about the same drug. So you take 20 milligrams of Lexapro or 10 milligrams of Lexapro, okay? 10 milligrams of Lexapro, many people are placed on 10 milligrams of Lexapro. One person goes off their 10 milligrams of Lexapro, weans over the course of several months, and they go into severe withdrawal. Another person goes off of Lexapro, um, and they, they do it over the course of two months, and they're just fine. We don't know why. Not yet. What about the fact that uh, general practitioners are responsible for, I don't know what percentage of prescriptions, but mm-hmm. you know, you, you said you're not a prescriber. How could they be? They're a prescriber, but they, they probably don't know very much about the drugs. So what happens in that case versus someone being prescribed by a psychiatrist? And do they know my, better? Do yes. they do better? My understanding, okay, again, I'm not a prescriber, so I'm not speaking from that experience. But my understanding from my my learnings, my readings, I mean, read, read Robert Whitaker's Anatomy of an Epidemic, and you'll learn all you need to know about this whole realm of prescribing psychiatric drugs and the way that it is causing harm to many people. Not that it harms everybody. And by no means am I saying that that some people are helped by these drugs, but it's the prescribing practices and it's the gaps in the prescribing practices. But what I understand is that we're most, most of the information that doctors get about these drugs is from drug reps that visit their office, leave, leave off information and flyers and leaflets and give, give um, talks during lunchtime and provide free lunches and so on and so forth. I think there's been uh, to their staff and to these doctors, and that's where the doctors learn these things. And if you're, you know, if you're a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. So if you, if you are learning about the benefits and the risks of drugs from those who are profiting from the drugs, obviously there is an, there is a perverse incentive there. I think it's pretty obvious. Okay. So that's, I think, part of the problem. I don't know if that's all of the problem, but that's certainly part of the problem. What's your recommendation from here on how things could be improved? I think doctors need to take, first of all, take people's reports of withdrawal very seriously. I think they need to monitor their patients more closely. 
I think the prescription practices need to be reeled in, quite frankly, and people, instead of walking into a doctor's office and within 15 minutes of reporting that they lost their grandfather and they're feeling grief and being given a prescription for that, that people need to be supported and people need to be directed to what we call non-drug interventions, non-drug techniques. One of the great things about being a psychologist is that's our wheelhouse, is helping people with their psychological distress using non-drug techniques. I'm also grateful to say that these non-drug techniques, self-help techniques, mindfulness, meditation, exercise, nutrition, a variety of things have really become almost mainstream now, certainly within the field of psychology and hopefully within the field of, you know, the the medical fields as well. Well, Very good. Uh, Dr. Mo, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? MoTreesHanna, PhD.com. MoTreesHanna, so it's M-O. T-H-E-R-E-S-E-H-A-N-N-A-H. So my whole name, Hanna, and then phd.com. That's my website. And I'd be happy to give you my, my email address. People can contact me through my email, which is mhanna413 at gmail.com. Well, very good. Dr. Mo, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was great, great talking to you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, which has been sponsored by Echelon. When you're trying to reach your fitness goals, it can really help to have world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin and Michael Brown choreographing classes with music from your favorite artists like Pitbull. And you get a community of hundreds of thousands of people who can give you that extra push. Echelon gives you that. Echelon's certified fitness instructors are supportive, engaging, and fun. They really know how to get you moving. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners can get up to $800 off MSRP to get this exclusive podcast discount. Text Genius to 818181 to get $800 off MSRP. Once again, text Genius to 818181. Message and data rates may apply. Please see terms for details. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.